God, I want to go there. I'm going to make a reservation. Oh. I want to go there. Make reservations with me. I wonder if it's open today. Maybe this evening. I don't know. Probably. Everything's just opening up, opening up. People get to do things again. Welcome to SVU Pod Especially Heinous. I'm Tasha. I'm Gabe. We are on season two, episode 21, Scourge. 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 (laughs) I'm not going to go there. I'm not going down that road again. The robot road. I. (laughs) Robot road. Bleep, bloop, bleep. All the little fucking (laughs) little curbs light up. Like Billie Jean. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I got it. Okay. It's the last episode of season two. Yes. I feel it's so weird that we're done with season two already. It I know. It feels really weird. And then here we are. Here we are. Season two, we're done with it. And ugh, we sing way too much on this fucking podcast. Who cares? I don't, I guess. I really like Who it. Who cares? Fuck all the people. <laughs> Nobody cares. Nobody's listening. Ooh. <laughs> Jeez. I'll fix yeah. that in post. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's listening. Auto-tune it. Okay. Nobody <laughs> Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> I've got a lovely bunch. Okay. <laughs> Deedle-dee-dee-dee. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. This older couple are walking outside after a play that they attended together. They're going back and forth about how she's like, I hate going to these plays. They're so expensive and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I don't care if I have to watch your kicking shows. And I love totally unrelated opening scenes. Yeah. And they were like cute about it, though. They were like cute arguing. I disagree. Oh, I don't love it. I thought they were just like cutely like negging each other. Oh, I read she that wrong. like a real bitch. <laughs> He's like, I don't mind watching your cooking shows. She's like, why do you buy tickets to go to fucking shows together? You know, I don't even like you. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I was like, so cute. Do you hate each other? <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, this guy just like runs into the husband, almost knocking him over. And then he goes to run across the street and this cab comes up and he kind of flops right down on the front of the hood of this cab. Pounds on the hood twice, but he does it like Billy Madison would have. And he even does it with like, he's like, <laughs> on the hood of this car. And then like everybody on the street got all New York-y. Even the husband like that got pushed was like, hey, what the hell, you drunk fool? And the cab's like, get out of here, man. I'm walking in. The husband's jacket is covered in blood. And she's like, oh, are you okay? And he's like, what? Look at this. And she's like, what's that? And they see this fire in the alley. And then she goes and stands and stares at it like the little match girl or some shit. That it just like cuts to like the cops are there and everything. Stabler is wearing that like brimmed hat again. He's at the, he's at the scene talking to the forensics. The front the yeah talking to forensics. Stabler and his hat are at the scene talking to forensics. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so the perp dropped his coat. So they have it, but it's pretty much the only evidence they have because the fire department washed anything else away, putting out the fire. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Benson is interviewing the couple that were arguing. She's like, "We're gonna have to take your coat for evidence." And as she walks away, the guy's like. I'm due for a new one anyway. <laughs> he had this little self-satisfied 
<laughs> I just made a successful dad joke smile. Yeah. <laughs> Olivia completely ignores it. So then Olivia goes over to Stabler so they can go over everything at the scene. The victim is recognized as like a sex worker that works in the area. So the firefighter comes up and joins their walk and talk. I loved him. He, I loved him too. <laughs> and he just like immediately goes into it. Malloy, you special victims. You part piled a mound of garbage on the victim. Lit it up. Her back is chawed. If our house wasn't right around the corner, she'd be well done. Both sides. He's all business. They get up to the Vic where Corner Warner's there to give them the grizzlies. Yeah. So the genitals on the victim are mutilated and there's also fluids. All the burns are post-mortem. And she knows that because the perp slit her throat down to her fucking spine. He also like filleted her torso from the neck to the genitals, which is like fucked. Stabes goes butchered and Corner Warner goes and barbecued. And I'm like, you're now officially initiated into the one liars club. Yep. (laughs) Theme song. Bung, bung. So Benson's on the street talking to witnesses. She's chatting with this like peanut vendor guy. This guy fucking saw everything. I like, I, I just, I can't. Like, they always do this shit where they're like, I didn't really see anything except for he was wearing a fucking blue shirt and like he had social security number is blah, 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 or whatever. It was insane. How many peanuts can a guy really be selling though? Like, he's probably just watching everything around him all the time. <laughs> he's like, it wasn't peak peanut time. So. I was able to see quite a bit. Saw the whole thing. The perp came out of the alley around 1030 and he was kind of like bouncing off everything and like almost knocked his cart over. The perp started preaching to the peanut vendor guy. And this was great because the peanut vendor guy was like, yeah, I told him, tell your story walking, buddy. I'm going to use that. Yeah. So the perp then got in a cab headed downtown. The peanut vendor guy's like, I've never seen this guy before, but I have seen the sex worker. She's around um, all the time. Her name is Cassie. Her name is Cassie. They never fucking tell you sex workers' names. Yeah. It's usually like hooker or whore, number one, two, three, four, or whatever. And I like that they didn't give her like a... Like starshine. Yeah. Tornado Alley. or No. (laughs) (laughs) Tornado Alley. I don't know what, where that came from. <laughs> so she had picked up the perp outside of the shop across the street and headed to the alley to get down to business. So the food vendor guy didn't catch the plate of the cab, except he could see it had a Y or a V. Like he literally saw everything. Craig and sent Munch and Toots to help out. So they show up. Stabler calls the food vendor guy peanut man. And like this guy pretty much solved the case for them. He's the only reason why they have anything. Yeah. Munch and Toots are heading to the shop that the perp met Cassie at. The shopkeeper says the perp was a weird a little guy with a beard. He came and wanted to buy water. He sends him over to the deli and the perp sees the adult entertainment section as he passes by, picks up a magazine, rips it up, and starts screaming about hell. So the shop guy grabs a Lady Liberty statue and tells him to get out, threatening to hit him with it. Mm -hmm. The dude reaches into his jacket, but then the shop owner hit him a few times with the statue and the perp runs out the door. The guy's like, he was whimpering like a bitch. (laughs) And I was like, this guy is not fucking around about protecting his store. Yeah. (laughs) They need the statue and the magazine for DNA and prints. And the shop dude's like, um, that's like $30 plus tax. And Toots is like, send a bill to the mayor. (laughs) And Munch is off camera. But, you know, he's like. (laughs) We're at the precinct. The victim is 23-year-old Cassie Horner. She's been busted for, quote, prostitution a few times. Hold on. She's been busted for sex work a few times. I don't know why I did that. Only info on the perp is that he's like, he's white. He had a dark coat. He was about six feet and like a little beard or something. And witnesses thinks he was like on drugs or drunk or something because he was like stumbly, you know, acting weird, you know? Mm -hmm. And Toots is like, that level of violence sounds like PCP. Remember, he comes from fucking narcotics. Narcotics, yeah. Craig is curious about the cab 
cab that almost hit the purse. Oh my God, yeah. Craig, it's New York City. That cab driver has almost hit like five other people by now. So they got prints off the peanut cart statue and the, ma- the ripped up magazine, but they don't match anyone in the system. So Benson and Stabler are heading to the Emmy to check on the autopsy of Cassie. Mm-hmm. Craig sends Munch and Toots to 9th and 10th Avenue to talk to other sex workers that Cassie worked with. Yeah, and Munch is like, calling on courtesans, our specialty. Shut I thought up. it was cute. <sighs> So now they're on what? Just munch. <laughs> that was you, a munch side. <laughs> I think you're frustrated because it was kind of hard not to like him. Just keep going. So they're down where Craig and sent him, munch and toots. They roll up and one of the women has like this top of her head, blonde crimped pony. And she comes up to the window and she's like, we're just standing here and we don't want any trouble. Munch is pretty nice about it and hands her a cup of coffee and is like, yeah. How about some coffee after a hard night's work? She takes it, but she's like, mm, you're giving handouts now. What do you want? Yeah. And Munch is like, we're not vice. We want to know about Cassie, which puts her at ease a little bit. Like, hey, we're not here to fuck with your livelihood, okay? Yeah. Earlier, Munch sarcastically said, like, we're here to talk about your colleague, Cassie. And he was being sarcastic by colleague, but actually, like, that is your colleague. Was you he know being what I mean? sarcastic? Yeah, he was just being, like, your colleague. I felt like he was being respectful. I thought he was using it, like, as, like... Just being shitty, but that is the magic of perception. <laughs> <laughs> so Munch is like, "Hey, we just spent seventeen bucks on coffee and donuts for you and your friends. If that's not respect, I don't know what is." And I'm like, "Nothing gets me like a donut." So right, she makes this like do? hilarious little like look, like "Ooh, look at you spending the big money," you know, and like rolls her eyes a little bit, but like definitely takes the donuts. Yeah, she was like, I mean, I'm going to take the donut. Like, you're dumb, yeah. but I'm going to take these donuts. And I do love this approach. I'm giving him decency points. Instead of just being like, hey, you sluts, get over well, here and talk to me. You know, there's yeah. plenty of times where the detectives will go up to a group of people doing some sort of job or have some sort of career that they're like, normally we could really fuck with you. So give us what we want or we're going to go through your fucking pockets or whatever. Yeah. But instead, he's like, you want some coffee and donuts? We got to ask about your friend. You know, they did see the perp and she said that he had a beard and crazy eyes. Mm -hmm. He told Cassie that his name was Daniel and the other woman that's standing at the window now being like, you got coffee for me in there? Yeah. She was like, I told her that I had a bad feeling about him and she kind of just told me to fuck off. And then the crimp Mm -hmm. hair goes, I wonder who's going to take care of Cassie's little girl. Uh, Yeah. We (sighs) never meet this girl. I need them to wrap that up for me. Yeah. Cassie and her mom were sharing an apartment. So obviously. Oh, okay. The the little girl's being raised by her grandma. Right. Okay. So now we're at the Emmy office. Coroner Warner tells Benson and Sailor that this was a particularly hard case for her. The way he tore Cassie apart and burned her was pretty intense. So there was 42 fucking stab wounds. Her throat was cut. And then the incision in the torso was just a lot. The only blood type that she found was on the coat that the perp dropped, but it was Cassie's. Right. The knife was six to eight inches long, double-edged, and serrated on one side. So Sabler's like, is it a military-style knife, or is he like a knife collector? And Corner Warner's like, whatever he is, he was in a frenzy, like some type of fever. And Stabler's like, yeah, a fever that spikes at night. And I'm like, that's not even a one-liner. That's just like a thing that happens. Yeah, just like, shut up. You know who's got a fever? Dickie. (laughs) I gotta get home to the twins. All right, so now we're in the squad room. Craigan's like, we got something. The lab got a DNA hit from the sex offenders database from the semen found on Cassie. Dude's name is Norman Fredericks. He's 30 and on parole for rape. 
So this guy lives in position with intent to sell. Yeah. Dude lives on Staten Island and has a job at like some contractor thing place. Um, Megan goes, Palmieri's got the address. He's working on it now. And I'm like, oh my God, is Palmieri Doug from high school? Yeah. Is it? It's not. But that's who I thought at the time. (laughs) So So Craig and sends Munch and Toots with them as backup. Benson and Stabler are on the job site and they're directed to Norman. Don't at me. But my immediate reaction is to be fully into this dude. I would let him make me yell his name like the crew at fucking Cheers. Okay. (laughs) Norm! (laughs) Uh, Norman spots them in fucking books. And I'm like, yes! Like, we're having a chase scene. And the music's like, it gets all like rock and rolly. And you're like, oh my God. Yeah. It's a different level of chasing. It, the music is very like the, you know, at the end of Kindergarten Cop when they're like going through the school. It was that kind of intensity. <laughs> so Munch and Toots roll up in the car. They see Norman running. They don't even get out of the car. They just fucking peel out after him in the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benson and Stabler are taken off on foot behind him. And they're like, everybody's like running and it's great. Toots cuts Norman <laughs> off. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at my notes, but I'm just seeing your little hands. My arms do that. <laughs> they're just Like running. the Terminator 2, like... <laughs> So Toots cuts Norman off and Norman like runs into the hood of the car screaming, I didn't do anything. And then did you fucking see how Munch <gasps> handled the gun? It was. He was, he literally like did a weird, sh- he was like wielding it and pointing it at everyone. He waved it over his head like he was fucking directing an airplane landing or something. I think shit. his arm was in the way of the like car door. A lot of like playing to the back of the room hand motions yeah it was a gun it was bananas i mean at one point when he was moving it it was in benson's face yeah it was a little much at that point you're like oh yeah that's right they're not actually police officers (laughs) you know (laughs) they arrest norman and as svu experts we are well aware that this will not be our dude (laughs) yeah there's no way we won't know until about like 46 minutes in. Right. Now we're in the interrogation room with Benson and Stabler and Norman. He doesn't deny having sex with Cassie. And Stabler's like, it's against your parole violation. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I didn't fucking kill her, though. I got home around 2.30. Every time Benson and Stabes took a crack at asking a simple question, like, did you know that's a parole violation? They had to be three inches away from his face. And then the, the one would walk away and the other one would pose on the table in front of him like a fucking lounge singer on a piano and be like what time did you get home yeah fucking in his face so there's a knock on the door fucking craigan's like there's another fucking victim murdered last night <sighs> so holy shit benson and Stabler are at the crime scene and they're talking to a cop no one noticed the body until the next day when her roommate found her which is fucking crazy to me yeah and you know they're talking to this cop and for the most part they could reuse the same beat cop on a loop and i wouldn't notice. i would never notice okay see you're you're noticing like coffee cups and shit so i was like am i neglectful because this guy i'm like you look like every other fucking white beat cop with like sideburns to your earlobes yeah no dark haired dude like he's he he could be a horse for all i know (laughs) It could be a horse cop or just a, a, a horse that is a cop. No idea. The coffee cups thing, though, that's just from like years and years of watching it. And I'd be like, I wonder if everybody that's like a New York coffee cup that everybody drinks out of like yeah. a standard New York state coffee. I don't know. <laughs> it's the state cup. It's yeah. The cup of New York state. <laughs> Wisconsin's is like a boot full of beer. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget to turn the toe at the end or whatever. Beer fest. Beer fest. Uh, so the, the roomie was in shock, so they took her to the hospital. So this cop is like, it's the first time in 14 years as a cop that I've like fucking barfed after seeing a dead body. So she was pretty like mutilated, I guess. He directs them to the stairwell. The victim is laying dead covered in a sheet. But her face 
is visible and you see her eyes rolled into the back of her head mm -hmm. and i'm like this girl is nailing this fucking part she's like yeah. if i'm gonna be on svu playing a dead body i'm gonna be on fucking svu playing a dead body these yeah, are she acting choices okay yep. She's a thorough actress. Yeah. She is method. She's been dead for a week. <laughs> yes. They had to like <laughs> flop her body down. They're like, you're an extra, honey. This is like not, this is really disruptive. And she's, she's just like, like <laughs> yeah, we, we both had cocked our heads. And we're like, <laughs> and she's all just like, <laughs> okay. Uh, so they're in the stairwell. Um, Corner Warner is there. Same mutilation as the last victim, Cassie, only worse. Mm. And I'm like, how could it be worse? I know. Sailor, this is fucking stupid. Sailor asks if she's a fucking sex worker because she's wearing a short black skirt and heels. Like, fucking eye roll. Yeah. But also, like, the last they're person also, was a sex worker, so they're thinking maybe there's a pattern. They're trying to find the pattern. Yeah. And if the pattern include, like, if that's something that's included, then it needs to be something that they, like. Yeah. So Stabler, is, yeah, Stabler's trying to put this together, and he thinks that the perp is like the new Jack the Ripper, you know, killing mm -hmm. sex workers and stuff. Now we're at the precinct, and we have a Cragen and Cabot walk and talk off the elevator. She's pissed that her bosses told her that SVU had a suspect, and she didn't know about it first. Cragen's like, you know better than to think I would keep you out of the loop. And she's like, right. I know, I'm sorry, but the way the victims were killed has her, like, all kinds of fucked up. Just like every, everybody's super on edge mm -hmm. because this is really gory yeah so munch pops through the two of them and says that the victim is 24 year old Teresa Folsom she's not a sex worker she's a publicist for a publishing house munch is bringing Teresa's roommate some coffee and toots is with her she's crying up against a window the last time she saw Teresa was the early morning hours because they were out they were club hopping with mm -hmm. other friends and Teresa got tired so they put her in a cab around midnight and sent her home which is what and, you're supposed to do which is like yeah good you know to like we all took care of her and took her you know sent her home yeah we didn't we yeah. weren't like bye batch say like they were making sure she got home yeah her roommate stayed out a little bit more and then crashed at her boyfriend's house munch goes book publicists don't make a lot of money and i don't like where this line of questioning is headed but i'm also now that we we're talking about it like yeah. they are trying to establish some sort of pattern yeah. So Munch asks her if she was doing sex work on the side. He could have gone about it a little more in a little gentler of a way. Yeah. Because um, he is talking to a girl who has like feelings of responsibility and whatever else because she was one of the last people to see her roommate. But yeah. she's like kind of fuck off because no, she wasn't doing sex work. And Toots jumps in and he's like, no disrespect intended. We have to ask. It's part of our job. Like, why couldn't Munch have asked that way? Been like, hey, I'm, I'm not trying to you know, be disrespectful, but like, was it possible? Like, we're like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, why can't you yeah. ask that way? It's, it's yeah. I feel like we hold Munch to a standard that none of the other detectives are held to. And it's strictly because he's annoying. Well, and because he thinks he's fucking better than everybody and smarter than everybody. And he's not. But those are annoying <laughs> traits. That's all under the umbrella of him being annoying. <laughs> it's under the, it's in the umbrella. Yeah. So the roommate said that Teresa had a boyfriend in Boston. Like when she tried to kind of jerk away from them, yep. fucking Toots like grabs her by strips, gripping her jacket like a little too aggressively for my taste. I noticed that too. It was yeah. like, he's I was like, chill. It cuts to her being like, oh, he had a boyfriend in Boston. And you just see Toots hand. I'm trying to show you. you see Toots hand, but his thumb is like buried into this part of her shoulder. Like really hard. I'm he like, was okay, like, she's not moving now, dude. It wasn't like, hey, he like put his hand on her shoulder. He like grabbed her like he was going to like when you grab the lapels of somebody's jacket and you shake them or something. It was like tight like that. It was like chill. Yeah. 
I didn't even look at her face while she was talking. I was just looking at his hand, waiting for her to like, like let go. Zooming in on his thumb, like loosen yeah. your grip. She says that Teresa wasn't promiscuous and would never just quote pick up a guy, which like right. never say never. Yeah, I mean it's fine if you do. Fuck. Yeah. Whatever. But yeah, she's just saying like she wasn't a sex worker and she actually didn't. She didn't really like sleep around very very much. Right. Now we're at Craigan's office. Teresa's record is fucking clean as hell. Not even a traffic ticket. We're looking through the one way glass and see that Norman is still in there. Norman's the guy that they picked up whose semen was found on Cassie. The one that ran away. Norman the doorman. I wish I could show you the face that he was making in the background. Like you could see him through the glass. Hang on. I took a selfie of imitating it. I have to I'll send it to you because it was so funny. I'm like, I'm not going to remember this face. Okay. Do you get it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was... He just didn't know what was going on. The whole time, just like... Yeah. So Benson totally thinks Norman killed Cassie, takes the cab downtown, kills Teresa, and then there's plenty of time to get home at Mm 2.30. Munch walks in and he's like, Norman isn't our dude. Yeah. So the lab found two different blood types on Teresa, hers and someone else's, probably the killer's, and it doesn't match Norman's. Mm-hmm. Staler suggests booking him for parole violation, like soliciting a sex worker. Um, I know they're like trying to wrap this up for us, like for the viewers, um, but it's not. And it's dumb. Yeah. To Just me, like, you know, move on, find something else. Like, wh- where's Cassie's daughter? Can we do that, please? Yeah. Like, was middle America like, oh, go, he's trying to have sex with a prostitute or whatever. And it's like, yeah, it's <laughs> like, let's let him go back to work. It gives a shit. I mean, but we don't know what he was on parole for. So, like, it could be something. You know, he was awful. on parole for rape. He was on. He was in jail for rape. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Then fuck him. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Find a reason to fucking put him back in. Jesus yeah, Christ. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> like, well, yeah. Let him go back to work. So oh, they I need to go. That's why they were going to pick him up. And I'm like, ooh, look at him. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I rescind my norm. So they need to go back to where the peanut guy was and stuff and get to the getaway cab that Perp used after killing Cassie. Yeah. Cragen wants them to check VICAP for any similar MOs. Yeah. VICAP is the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. So mm-hmm. it's really just like a collection of information. Right. Cragen's also going to call Wong to get his profile. And then I'm like, fuck yes. So we're in the fucking squad room. Fucking Wong is telling everyone his profile like a boss so this profile is he comes out at night focuses his rage on sex workers and women he believes to be sex workers munch goes off about jack the ripper and the similarities Craigan tells munch to chill out but wong says that the perp may be a wannabe especially if he's a paranoid schizophrenic and i know that there's a way to say schizophrenia and i forgot what it was tasha um well he is one he does say paranoid schizophrenic which we've learned is no longer a term paranoia is a symptom of schizophrenia and we would say that this that he has schizophrenia not that he is a schizophrenic because then that labels a person to be like that doesn't define who the person is right the witnesses heard the perp yelling about hellfire and damnation and maybe the perp saw the victim as the devil Mm -hmm. um but he didn't burn Teresa. but he could have heard first he could have <laughs> he, he could have heard first <laughs> He could have heard footsteps and run off. Dude, I was watching I've been I've just finished the limited series thing, but the mayor of Easttown. Yeah. It's really good. It's got Kate Winslet in it and she's like from Pennsylvania or something. But they their accent has R's and everything. So like there's a an SNL skit about it too where he's like, Where's my dirter? <laughs> and like <laughs> the whole fucking show I keep thinking of you and you killed my dirter. <laughs> You're Kerma Dirter. <laughs> oh my god, Gersberms. <laughs> 
He could have heard Fred Sturps. Merce Paterters. Stop it. Bernerner. <laughs> so, <clears throat> a lot of people with a lot of people heard who... girl shimmer. Hurt <laughs> girl shimmer. I'm going to wear a Bacurner. <laughs> so, Wong says that some people with schizophrenia self medicate with alcohol. So, that makes explain why witnesses saw him stumbling or that he seemed like he was high or drunk. Mm-hmm. Wong thinks they need to look for a man mentally ill since childhood or early adulthood. Maybe he was institutionalized, not able to hold on a job, lives alone, obviously strong religious delusions, and he might have command hallucinations, which is voices telling him to kill. The perp is also impulsive, disorganized, unpredictable, and he won't stop till he's caught. I fucking live for the addition of Wong and the perp analysis that he gives. Like, I miss Skoda, but Wong is just has this energy that is soothing for me yeah and he you can tell that he just loves what he does yeah he's almost always got like a little half smile or something going on it's like interesting Mm -hmm. so freaking cabot saunters in with a newspaper and says better make it soon the press is already calling him the night ripper stabler wants to release the witnesses sketches but wong doesn't think it's a good idea because the publicity will excite the perp even more possibly this is awesome craigan wants every vice unit out warning sex workers about this dude which is fucking rad they could have just been like well he'll take care of him for us (laughs) or whatever you know benson and stabler neared the cabs down to nerd i did it again Burnson and Sturbler nerd the curve. Damn it, Bert Turve. Go get him. Curb horror. All right, Benson Sailor narrowed the cabs down to about 12. Go get him. Go get him. So now we're at the crab hole. <laughs> what the fuck is happening? this little place in florida i go to called the crab hole the breath the cab hole or the cab hanger or the garage crab hole that was gabe's nickname in high school <laughs> <laughs> wait sorry what crab crab crotch crab crotch uh <laughs> garage. garage crab garage <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that tiktok you sent me of that guy wheeze laughing after everything <laughs> I was fucking like crying. I wish I could like comment on each one because there's, Mm -hmm. you know. I know, me too. Okay, so we're at the cab hole. Benson and Stabler are trying to cross-reference with the cab boss on cabs on the street that Cassie was killed on with Y or V in the license plate. Jesus, fuck. They have two cabs with a V on the plates. One was running from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. that night. But according to the log, the cab wasn't on the street. And he said that the driver didn't even make enough to cover his lease. And I'm like, hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. So Benson and Stabler look at the log. The cabbie put 82 miles on the car, but only log jobs for like half of that. Right. They weren't dropping the meters on all the fares and they're pocketing the cash. Yeah. So they want his name and address. They're at the apartment of Seku Obang. Benson and Sabler ask if he picked up a fare on 44th and 9th where Cassie was killed. He says no. Then they call him out about not logging all of his fares to keep 
some extra money for his family. He kind of looks ashamed and he's like, I wasn't driving that night. His cousin, Nekruma, was. So Nekruma comes out to talk to the cops and he's a big dude, but he looks nervous and scared. Saku lets him drive sometimes to make extra money to send home to Akam. Akam, yeah, to his family. The cousin saw the perp's face and the bloody clothes and it scared him. Nekruma said the guy had wild eyes and a bushy beard. He had driven him to 3rd Street and Avenue D and he was paid with a bloody $20 bill. And they're like, we need that fucking 20. Yeah. But he spent it and he can't give it to them for evidence. So yeah. Benson and Stabler have to get that cab to forensics before it goes out again for the night. So now we're at CSU. Munch and Toots are talking to a forensics guy going through the cab. And they're all in the cab and it's dark because they're going to use the black light. And it, it like looked like they were sitting around going to tell a ghost story to each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just really cute the way they were all kind of like together. In the Like you guys don't have to be that close, but you can <laughs> so this guy's gonna shine a black light on it to like fucking luminol they're doing the luminol yeah. shit yeah to make the blood kind of show up bunch of blood right so they've got to have it tested munch gets a phone call that jack the perp killed again mm. so now munch and tooth show up at an arcade Ugh. i hate this i hate it yeah. too so there's a guy on a stretcher and he's covered in blood and like urgently telling them what happened. This guy was really great. So he said that this guy came in yelling about how the machines are controlling kids' minds and then goes into the bathroom, grabs this kid and cuts the kid's throat. Yes. The guy on the stretcher, who is obviously like the arcade dude, jumped the perp and tried to stop him, but he got stabbed in the stomach in the process. Yeah. So then the kid's dad, who didn't see the perp, didn't see what happened, just sees his son bleeding on the floor and runs over to him screaming. And the guy in the stretcher like doesn't have time and he's injured himself. So he doesn't have time to be like, oh my God, look out, there's somebody with a knife. The fucking guy cuts the dad's throat too. Jesus fuck. So this guy on the stretcher is so fucking traumatized. Of course. I know. Bunch of toots are going to go ride with that guy to the hospital. Craig and Benson and Stabler are also there. So they're going to, over to talk to the mom of the little boy and the wife of the dude who were both killed. Mm. Her name is Jean Weston. She's just like at the crime scene on the other side of the police tape. She's extremely distraught. She gave me Juliette Lewis vibes. The little boy was nine years old. Yeah. Right? And like, so we thought the pattern was maybe sex workers, you know? Right. So mom is very distraught. They're tourists and the little boy his name was josh and he just wanted to go and play video games and her just saying that hits something in my ocd that like makes me want to isolate my kids super hard if jacoby's like i want to stop at this fucking fun family place i'd be like no that's where we all get murdered no <laughs> that's my head does it i don't say that shit out loud to my kids they're already right. gonna be fucked up enough i don't need to help that just from being humans not because there's anything wrong with them just because yeah like, they're humans. Jean tells Stabler that they're leaving tomorrow and she needs to go pack. She's just like in this. So sad. She's in a shock mode. She's like, yeah, we're we're taking off tomorrow. You know, I got to go pack. We got to go. And you're just like, oh, God. Right. Stabler asks a cop to take her to the hospital to have her checked out. Benson, Stabler and Craig and then go into the bathroom where the bodies are. And there's blood splattered all over the walls, all over the stalls. Mm -hmm. And Coroner Warner is there next to a body. The same knife was used on the dad and the son that were used on all the other victims with the same MO. Right. So now we're in the squad room. Like the whole entire precinct is in there, including Captain Sullivan. He's the one like pretzel, like num 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 guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was just wearing like a normal amount of uniform, wasn't he? I, I thought. I mean, I thought he had a hat and everything on. Was he, he full? Like somebody else was holding onto his duster. His duster was getting dry cleaned and everything <laughs> That's else. Right. He's like, yeah. He was wearing um, full gold lame pants, though. <laughs> he got a new accessory. <laughs> he earned it. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh my god. What if they got flair? Like when I worked at Outback Steakhouse, if you like did something good or made great sales or whatever, you would get a piece of flair, which was just like like a pin. You would just get like mm -hmm. a little pin. I'm wondering if like he's just excitedly displaying all of his flair. Yeah. It's gotta be. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. There's been four victims in the last 24 hours. This guy needs to be stopped like yesterday. He's killing mm -hmm. randomly and literally no one is safe until he's caught. Who knows who he's going to kill next, you know? The reward is up to 100k and they're going to be flooded with tips and they need to investigate every single one. Kraken's like, let's get a move on. We got to catch this turd. Quote, right. end quote. <laughs> Benson, Stabler, Munch, and Toots are all tasked with canvassing the different avenues that this guy was on. And Kragen's like, Palmieri's taking Avenue A. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on with Palmieri? Quit trying to make him fucking happen, Kragen. <laughs> Nobody even asked. And then he, t uh, Kragen tasks Munch with going to talk to the coroner Warner to get in like an update on all this stuff. And then Kragen actually wants Stabler to coordinate the phone calls and shit. And Stabler's like, this is me and Benson's case. Like, why aren't we out there? And Kragen's like, dude, I need somebody I trust and who's in charge while I'm doing stuff for the bosses. Like nobody sweats the details like you. Yeah. Even though, I mean, I'm like, I feel like, you know, I mean, <laughs> Benson would, but okay. Yeah. I know. I was like, I don't, I didn't know that he sweats the small stuff. I mean, she's the one that's always finding the fucking evidence before the, she's the one who's tripping over books in the park. Yeah. Or like, hello, opening up curtains with a bunch of fucking condoms and shit. <laughs> so all of a sudden, Jean Weston, she's the lady in shock at the arcade. Mm -hmm. She busts into the precinct and wants to talk to Stabler. And she's like, oh my God, we're closing on our house next week and I need to get home. And Stabler's like, can you contact some family or friends in New York you can stay with? But she doesn't know anybody. And then she like falls into Stabler's arms and is like crying. But he's like also has to do stuff and was like, you know, the phone rings and, and he gets this like detective to take her and get coffee and whatever, whatever she wants. Yeah. Um, you know who it was? He goes, this is Detective Palmieri. It's Palmieri. Yeah. And I'm like, finally. But why are we pushing this dude? I don't I know. Was like in my head, I was going, OK, why the fuck? all of Because this guy isn't a person. He doesn't become a thing. Nothing. He's just like your average dude. I'm like, did the writers have a super troopers bet? Like, I bet I can have him say my name like five times this episode. And the other <laughs> guy's like, dude, I'll suck your dick if you can swing that. And he's like, all right, Palmieri. So, so far we got three. Three. three You're sucking my dick, bro. You're sucking my dick. <laughs> They're having a watch party. He's like, oh, oh, I'm gonna oh, unzip. I'm good. Good thing I wore these basketball shorts. <laughs> oh shit. You got two more Palmieri's before you got my balls in your fingers. <laughs> Mind the stepchildren, buddy. <laughs> You're like, I love your fingers doing that. Yeah, so she's crying. Um <laughs> anyway, so, so she goes off with <laughs> oh shit that's five. Oh my god uh, anyway, oh, it, was it was kathy who was on the phone to talk to stabes and he was like oh kathy i'm just happy to hear your voice which oh my god right. i mean that's got to be fucking ugh. yeah stabler is walking around with the weight of the world on his shoulders the weight of the world on his ass mm. just around. <laughs> all right much is at the me office the so the perp picked up and dropped evidence at each crime scene somewhere on each scene was the same fiber the perp wore the same clothing when he killed all four victims yeah oh my god now we're at the precinct bunch toots and benson are heading out to canvas 
Kragen stops him and he's like, forget that shit. They have a disturbance. The suspect is being held by civilians. They got to get there now. Yeah. So, and there's $100,000 available. So also like all of New York is like freaking out. Right. It's also like, let's fucking split it, you guys. Right. Citizens arrest time. Everybody gets a buck. Let's do this. Everybody gets uh, a buck. What is it? A music festival? He's like at fucking Coachella. <laughs> Benson, Munch, and Tooth show up to this disturbance on the street. A dude is on a stretcher, a bit beat up. And there's a fucking mob. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone had heard that this guy accosted a sex worker and spouted about the Armageddon. The fucking mob chased him and started beating him up. It's not the same guy, they think. Toots holds up the sketch, but it just looks like a sketch of Jason Mantzoukas. Yeah. And some guy's like, he probably shaved his beard and hair. Kill him! <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, that's he's gonna, he's, like, he's gonna kill another whore! <laughs> like, whoa. I know. I know. It was like, geez, calm down. It was a lot. <laughs> that guy was doing a lot. Yeah. With the little bit that he had. The other extra next to him was like holding his ear like, geez, man. I'm like, chill. <laughs> so the cops are trying to call him to fucking growl down. But like, everybody's scared. You know, they got a fucking Jack the Ripper like killing kids and freaking sex workers and publicists yeah. and dads. So So back at the precinct, Munch and Toots and Benson ask Stabler how it's going. There had been 500 calls since 11 p.m. And Stabler tells them all to go get some shut-eye in the crib. It's like 4 in the morning. Mm -hmm. Benson's too pissed to sleep, and she's going to help him with shit. She literally says, oh, no, I'm too pissed to sleep. Mm -hmm. And that is my favorite thing that she said this entire season maybe right. the entire first two seasons yeah plus they're partners and they fucking love each other mm. olivia starts reading over files and stabes goes i spend more time with you than i do with my family yeah and i'm like blah blah blah. who cares she looks up at him like oh and it's like it's season two and they're trying to do that like will they won't they think but they don't fucking make out in the next 20 years i know that we all know that so like i don't care yeah so then thank god for olivia and her detailed accountability because she sweats the details. She literally looks at three papers. She's like, not this one, not this one. Oh, what's this? (laughs) A guy at a shop said that someone gave him a check with bloody fingerprints on it. That seems like a detail that somebody who's detail oriented would have noticed. Right. Thanks, Benson. Right. So they go to the shop. Dude tells Benson Stabler he didn't see the guy who cashed it. He assumed it was Paul Varney because the check's in her name. Mm-hmm. Oh, then, then he said that he was, he said that he was cutting, what did he say? Prosciutto? Prosciutto. Yeah. And then I was like, oh my God, I have some pancetta in my freezer. And I literally stepped, paused, went to my freezer and I was taking these notes to thought. Because <laughs> I was like, what you can make? Really like angel hair pasta, pancetta, some basil and fucking Roma tomatoes yeah. in there. It'll uh. be... Basil, peas, some spinach linguine, uh, parmesan. Oh my God, I'm yeah, so hungry. Tomato. That sounds that really sounds good. Delish. I decided to say pancetta because yesterday I tried to say pancetta. And then I stopped myself while I was talking to the person. I was like, I'm not, I'm saying pancetta. I'm not doing that. This is why I don't fucking do that shit where I try to like do the accent to be like correct right. because I sound like a fucking asshole. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I got some delicious pancetta. <laughs> some pan- pancetta. Shh, fucking shut up, Gabe. <laughs> And the person was just looking at me the whole time because I didn't know them. And I was like telling them a story and then stopping myself to be like, I'm a fucking asshole. I'm going to continue with the story. And they were like, <laughs> nice to meet you. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you have like another side conversation. It's like, well, I'm never going to talk to this fucking person again. She's like, I heard you. You're like, I know. <laughs> so they go to Paula Varney's apartment. Paula Varney. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have the Paula Varney. Yum. I want Italian food. I know, okay. me too. They're at Paul Varney's apartment, by the way. It's Thursday, May 3rd, which is my fucking birthday. Oh my god! 
Can you believe it? Oh. I recognize this lady, but I didn't know what from, and, and I figured you might. She was in the Indiana Jones movies, and she was also in Animal House. It's like what, what she's known for. What was her name? Do you know? Palavarni. I don't know. Karen Allen? Yeah. Okay, so she tells Benson the sailor that she gave that check to her husband, and she's like, why, is something happened to him? Like, is he okay? She's like, now worried about him. So he doesn't live there with her and their daughters, and then she sends the girls up to their rooms to get uh, dressed. The last time she saw her husband, Daniel, was the day before yesterday. She helped support him. They're separated. A few years ago, he started, quote, losing it and lost his job, but, like, refused to see a doctor. Wow. Also, I remember one of the sex workers saying that Cassie said the guy's name was Daniel. Oh, shit. I didn't remember yeah. that. So while she's talking, Benson looks over at Staves and he's kind of perusing. He picks up a wedding photo of the couple and wiggles it at Benson. And so mm-hmm. then Benson wiggles her eyebrows at him about it. And <laughs> Staves wiggles his eyebrows back. And I'm like, ooh, we got him. Yeah. Benson shows her the sketch of the perp who's been murdering everyone. Uh, I said it. Who's been murdering everyone? <laughs> oh, my God. He's like murdering everybody. It's her husband, Daniel. It's her fucking husband, Daniel. Damn, Daniel. Damn. (laughs) Look at those bands. (laughs) She says their priest gave him a small room in their church. Their church is called Our Lady of Lords. He's a janitor there. She's very concerned about him and if he's hurting anyone. But Benson Stabler can't really say anything to her yet because they need to make sure it's him before they go like spouting off about, you know, she's like, what happened? And she's like, we, you know, we don't really know. Now Benson and Stabler are poking around Our Lady of Lords. A judge signed a warrant and Munch and Toots are on their way to, to the church. The warrant is for dude's room. Mm-hmm. So they see this dude mopping. It's fucking Daniel. His mm-hmm. beard is trimmed a little bit. And his hands are wrapped in like cloth and bloody. So they stop him and tell him that they are police and want to talk to him. Daniel gets like wild eyed and backs up. This guy was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, kind he, of. Was, he was really good. He backs up and he's like, his avenging angels cometh. So the music starts to get all intense and Daniel starts like muttering and shaking. Benson mm-hmm. and Stabler kind of look at each other, but like separate and are kind of slowly flanking each side of him, but like yeah. keeping a distance. He asks them if the Lord sent them to judge him and Benson's trying to calm him down and he says like, no, 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 no. We're not here to judge you. We're here to help you. He sent us to help you. Yeah. He asks her why. He's like, I serve the Lord and I cleanse the unclean with their own blood. I was supposed to. Yeah. Stabler's kind of getting on the other side carefully. Olivia's doing the conversation part of it, distracting yeah. him. Yeah, and Stabler's just like, he's getting kind of getting carefully on the other side of him. Like, he's worried this dude's going to fucking attack because he's unpredictable. You know, it's like part of his profile, too. So Daniel kind of starts reaching into his coat pocket and he pulls out this fucking bloody knife and says, wasn't I good enough? Why did you send your angels for me? He's like obviously talking to God. Mm -hmm. So Benson kind of reaches back to unclip her gun with one hand, the other hand trying to calm Daniel down. Stabler already got his gun out (laughs) and like still slowly making his way around to the other side of Daniel, still with distance. Benson is telling him that the Lord didn't send them there to destroy him. The Lord sent them there to reward him. You know, she's really just like getting in there with him to yeah. be like hey everything's cool it's so like then crisis Dan- management right daniel starts reciting the lord's prayer and benson starts saying it with him you know they're like our father full of cheese or whatever the fuck full of heaven or whatever it is. <laughs> Did you, I thought you our, said, <laughs> our father oh geez you know whatever it is <laughs> full of cheese I'm making like, spaghetti and meatballs for dinner. That's all I can think about i want some yeah fucking steve i'm gonna have to like, go to the store i'm gonna have to get some basil and pancetta 
Vegeta. Sorry, this is a really intense scene. Go ahead. So fucking Stabler is like holstering his gun because he know his fat ass is going to tackle Daniel, mm. which he does like immediately after that. He just like jumps on him. It's like resting a little bit. And Benson fucking straight up like kicks the knife out of Daniel's hand super weirdly. She like Elaine Bennis dancing at a wedding. She kicks that's it out exactly of like. Yes, Tasha. Yeah, it was like that. It was super weird. They arrest him while he's like mumble praying. This dude is like obviously pretty sick. Yeah. That scene was so intense. Me writing it was super intense. And now talking about it, I have chills again. Look at this. Look at these chills. Yeah. I got Gershberg. We're back at the precinct. Benson and Stabler are unloading Daniel out of the squad car. And there's just a fucking mob of people and reporters the reporters are like yelling questions and daniel's got a kevlar vest on like this is high profile intense yeah his eyes he's like what's going on he doesn't know anything about what's going on right in the interrogation room benson walks in to talk to daniel and he says what he did to those four people he did because he was following orders from god who sent him messages from an angel that came to him Mm mm-hmm And he's like, why didn't you shoot me? You have to kill me, please. I can't take any more pain. And it's just heartbreaking. Everyone in this episode is so heartbreaking. But the guy doesn't want to be doing this. He's obviously not well. He's not well. Yeah. On the other side of the glass, Cabot is suggesting to Cragen that Daniel needs to go on suicide watch. Right. Stabler pops in and says that Coroner Warner told him that the knife that they found on Daniel matches the wounds on the victims. Munch and Toots had used the search warrant on Daniel's room in the church and are on their way to the lab with the bloody clothes that they found, which were just hanging up on a hanger. Yeah, he just put his clothes away. Yeah. Cabot tells them to type the reports because she wants to get him into court. Where the fuck is Wong, by the way? He was only in there for like a second. Like, he should have been all over this fucking episode, you yeah. know? At this point, too, it was like 10, ten bucks, Gene Weston, like the lady that whose son and husband got killed. Yeah. That she kills this guy outside of court, like, was thinking she was going to come in randomly and just, like, fucking slaughter like, after she got out of her initial shock and was like, okay, I'm murdering this guy. Yeah, that's very a time to kill of you. Right, yeah. But yeah, that would have been a really good ending, too. Okay, so we're through in Raymond Court, May 4th. Oh, my God, the day after my birthday. The oh, court yeah. is full of looky-loos. The lawyers are talking to the judge about the charges. Sorry for screaming. <laughs> that last part. The judge asked Daniel's lawyer how he pleads. And all of a sudden, Daniel asked the judge are you God? Yeah, and his eyes are wild, just like the cab driver's cousin had yeah. said. Yeah. This is that judge that we like, by the way. Love she replies, just an overworked judge, and I asked the questions, not you. Yeah. So she asks his lawyer again how Daniel pleads, and Daniel again starts talking. He says, how can you judge me if you're not God? So she's like, tells his lawyer, like, dude, you need to control your, your fucking dude. Yeah. And the lawyer says, we plead guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. All of a sudden, Daniel screams like, no! And he fucking double handcuffed fist hits his lawyer in the fucking face. Yeah. So he's screaming at the judge that she can't judge him. The detective security and Daniel's wife, Paula, run over to him, but Benson's holding Paula back. The judge is pounding her gavel, like demanding order. So he's losing it and keeps yelling at the judge that she can't judge him. And he's really, really trying to get at her. His wife is yelling that he can't help it. And he's sick his fucking lawyers on the ground with a bloody head but like seems okay he's dazed as fuck though what he's oh yeah he's dazed yeah cabot's over there like are you all right dude so they they take him out of the court like kicking and screaming then the camera pans to cabot's face and she's got this look on her face like god damn she doesn't but she does mouth what the 
fuck? Right. Do you remember in Mommy Dearest when Joan Crawford fucking loses it and the little girl goes, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, it was like that. You know? It's like this little eight-year-old. Jesus Christ. We're at the court steps outside. Daniel's wife, Paula, runs up to Cabot. She's like begging Cabot to not ask for the like death penalty. And Cabot's like, I like, really can't talk to you right now. I'm like, we can't. Yeah. Paula's like, do you fucking want actual justice or are you just going to swing whichever way public opinion blows? Killing him won't bring the, those people back. I have to live with what he did. And our daughters have to grow up knowing that their father murdered people, you know? And mm-hmm. Cabot's like, dude, I, I just, I speak for the victims and I follow the law. And Daniel's wife is so upset and she's saying that Kevin doesn't care blah 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 and that he's sick and the law should protect him too which is like yeah but it's if you can't have an expectation that this guy isn't going to have some sort of repercussions like legal repercussions he brutally murdered four people a city is like in upheaval right you know it doesn't like exempt he- him from Exactly. Like his mental illness isn't, it's an explanation, but not an excuse. You know what I mean? Like you still have to. Yes, it will be taken into consideration. Yes, obviously it's very clear that there's something very wrong. We talk and I feel like this is time. one of those things where Cabot is going to do her thing. Well, she'll make sure he gets like some sort of help or goes to a hospital prison or something, you know? It's funny that you say that because in the very next scene, Cabot and Daniel's <laughs> lawyer are doing a walk and talk and they're in the um, Bellevue Hospital Center. Yeah. And his lawyer's got a big old bandage on his head and Cabot's like I want the death penalty <laughs> I know I yeah yeah <laughs> and his lawyer's like dude like he should be in a psychiatric hospital I agree and Cabot's like that's for a jury to decide and at that fucking moment I was thinking like everybody in the entire world is so dumb like <laughs> I like I I would hate to have 12 random people judging my oh my god I know system is fucked oh god I don't have a solution or a better way to do it but mm-hmm. like you know 200 years from now they're gonna be like they used to just send people shit they'd be like hey come to this place at this time and then they would decide whether you were gonna decide the fate of someone and then you had two very well-trained convincers trying to talk random people to be convinced of something one thing is wrong one thing is right maybe none of them could be right or wrong and they're and and then they used to tell people if you're honest you're not you won't be in trouble or like okay you're gonna sit in this special chair and if you lie you could get in legal trouble you don't have to worry if you're innocent not true not true not true at all anyway you guys are gonna be sent to a room (laughs) and you all have to come to the same conclusion what if we have different opinions then they do it over again yeah right they do it over again until some group of 12 decides that this person will either go home or be locked away yeah what like the pizza delivery guy (laughs) next to the stay-at-home mom Next to the fucking professor of sociology. Anybody. Everybody. And none of you know how to not be convinced of things and look, look for that shit. Look at commercials. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, oh, that's so scary. And the convincers get to choose who's in that group. They pick the people that they think that they can convince the most. Oh like, holy my shit. God. <laughs> what is happening? What are we doing? So Daniel's lawyer doesn't think that he's competent to stand trial, which he absolutely is not. No. Uh, She argues that Daniel knew what he was doing when he solicited the sex worker because he threw her coat out and he ducked down in a cab so the cops wouldn't see him. And I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't really. Okay. Cabot and Daniel's lawyer are looking through some glass to see Daniel laying on a table and Wong talking to him. There he is. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> there he is. Yeah. <laughs> this dude doesn't even remember that he has an attorney or that he was in court. He does remember that God told him to kill those people. Like he's repeating religious messages from God. Wong's listening and walking around him studying his face. Wong says, but the Bible says thou shall not kill. And Daniel insists that he had to. He's like, I didn't fucking want to kill a little boy, but I had to. And then he starts bawling. Yeah. On the other side of the glass, Cabot has this face like, oh, fuck, like he does belong in a hospital, you know, like, right. She's learning to love. Now we're at the courthouse or something. Wong finds Cabot. She tells him that the DA just signed the papers for death penalty against Daniel. Mm. Wong says Daniel is incompetent to stand trial and doesn't fit any profile he can come up with and reminded her he doesn't even remember hitting the lawyer. Cabot confidently says, quote, we've convicted schizophrenics and psychotics before. But like, that's not really good, though, is it? <laughs> you know? No. Like, she's like, we've done it before. And you're like, um, it's not that great. Right. Wong doesn't think that he's suffering from schizophrenia or psychosis. To Wong, Daniel's loss of memory suggests an or organic dementia, like a disease attacking the brain, many strokes, early onset Alzheimer's, brain tumor, or something else. You know? Right. So Cabot's like, ugh. But, like, I'm under so much pressure, like, to kill this guy. <laughs> and Wong, like, shrugs, like, figure it out, bitch. You know? Like, yeah. do the right thing. Get this motherfucker a CAT scan or something. Wong suggests a complete workup. Labs, MRI, LP. He also wants Daniel's medical records. And she begrudgingly, like, goes for it. This is the first I've been annoyed with her, I think. I'm like, why are you pushing for the death penalty and for getting it approved when your experts are, le like, Wong is an expert, you know? He's there mm. going, there are other facts that we have to gather and you're all about the data and the facts cabot right like, yeah well, I, I don't know I just why, don't get why it because she's really pushing this yeah i don't know why she was acting like that yeah. this time around i don't know she was probably getting her period <laughs> <laughs> that's why women can't be in charge <laughs> i like the way you're saying your bees in that <laughs> I can't, can't it's it's a loose bee. It's a loose bee. <laughs> That's why women can't be in here. <laughs> Do a tight bee. Do a tight bee. <laughs> Duh. Okay. We're back at Paula Varney's house. You know, Daniel. Daniel's wife. I kept she thinking about Ernest, like the old Ernest movies, because his name was Jim Varney. <laughs> hey, Vern. <laughs> So she lets Benson in. She asks her for her help. Paula's mad because she's like, you guys just want to kill him. Yeah. Benson's like, I, I want his medical records to help shed some light on why he did what he did. And she, Paula doesn't understand what happened to her husband. She said he was like the gentlest man she'd ever known. Then he started to change, but he wouldn't go see the doctor. And then one night she woke up. This is creepy. One night she woke up to him standing in the girl's room holding a knife crying. He told her that life was hopeless and wanted to spare them the pain. Can you fucking imagine? Mm -mm. Oh. So Benson's like, just please, just you have to trust me. Like, trust me. So we're in the squad room. Stabler tells Craig and Cabot that he and Benson finished going through Daniel's medical records. They ended three years ago around when his wife said he started acting differently. Dude was totally healthy. So then Wong pops in and says that Daniel's lab came back. He has fucking advanced syphilis. Whoa. Meaning his brain is fucking, quote, Swiss cheese, and the moral center of his brain is long gone. Right. So Wong had given him penicillin, but the damage was already done. He's like, he already has a death sentence. Like, he's not going to recover. Alex. Yeah. Cabot. Yeah. 
So now we're at the Bellevue Hospital Center. Benson is with Daniel's wife, Paula. Benson tells her that she was right that it wasn't Daniel's fault. He has syphilis. She's like freaking out, like wondering about herself and her daughters. Like they've been married for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then Benson tells her that her and her daughters need to get tested, but that it's only contagious in the early stages. And that since Daniel's is so advanced, he probably picked it up long before they even met. And I did not know that syphilis was that long acting. Like, yeah, I've done pretty deep dives on the Tuskegee experiments. So I have like little pockets of syphilis information in my brain. Oh, really? Paula doesn't know how like no doctors ever picked up on this. Seven years before their first daughter was born, he had a medical visit when he tried to get life insurance, but he was denied and they never knew why, which is interesting to me. And I was like, did they not catch it? Or if they didn't catch it, is it the insurance company's fault? Right. So Benson tells her that the companies have to tell you why when you're denied. So she wants mm-hmm. Paula to get those records. And then Paula goes in to see Daniel and he asks about the girls and says everything hurts so much and that he's sorry and she's holding him and it's so fucking sad. Yeah. So we're in Cragen's office and Benson and Stabler bust in and tell Cragen and Cabot that Paula got an answer from All Atlantic Life Insurance. They knew he had syphilis and didn't inform him. Also, companies are required to report communicable sexually transmitted diseases to the health department and the health department would have notified daniel so mm-hmm. that's more than one opportunity that they mm-hmm. missed one fucking shot of penicillin back then could have cured him benson yep. is pissed and she's like i want their ass yeah she's mad this whole she's episode mad. she's mad and I, love I know it. now we're at the office of malcolm hunt the ceo of all atlantic life benson and stabler bust into this guy's fucking office and arrest him for reckless endangerment for failing to notify the health department about daniel's communicable disease he's a, he's a little fucking weenie yeah he's an extra long hot dog with glasses on yes God. <laughs> yes he's a fucking little wiener this dude has an attitude the second the detectives plow into his fucking office mm-hmm. and he's looking over his sally jesse Raphael glasses like <laughs> and who might you be <laughs> Oh, Sally Jesse. Um, well, I think they were just like kind of red. And I was like, fucking Sally Jesse, Raphael, motherfucker. <laughs> you entire wiener. You entire hot dog, Sally Jesse, Raphael, motherfucker. You little puckered on both ends, little hot dog, motherfucker. <laughs> oh. So this guy is acting like the legal system is news to him. Yeah. Um, and Benson shows him the warrant that is signed by a judge. He's like, who's a th- Benson cuffs him and he looks at Stabes and he's like, is this necessary? And Stabes shrugs like, my partner is tired and pissed. I'm not here to advocate for you. And he's just like standard procedure and Mm -hmm. reads him his Miranda rights. Right. So we're in Cabot's office. Malcolm and his lawyer are there. And I think it's the pickle eater lawyer, right? It was, right? It is that flat top smug ass motherfucker. Cabot fucking hates that guy. Yeah. The lawyer tells Cabot that she needs a scapegoat for all this, and that's why they're picking on his client. She checked with the health department. They were never notified of Daniel's syphilis. And Malcolm's like, oh, probably slumped through the cracks. Blah, blah, blah. Malcolm is like, it's the applicant's job to ask why they were denied. He's like, and, and if they had to explain to every single person why they got rejected, they'd have to hire more staff. Premiums would go up, blah, blah, blah. But that still doesn't explain why they didn't report it to the health department, which is required by law. So a buck fifty's worth of penicillin would have cured Daniel back then. Mm. 
It's fucking disgusting. Okay, and she's like, and when we go through the company's shit and find a pattern of not reporting, we're going to fucking seize the company's profits and assets to the crime. See how your stockholders like that. And Malcolm can sit in prison for seven years and think about it. And she's just, she's just being a fucking badass bitch. And this pickle-eating, Ron White probably enthusiast, probably <laughs> thinks strippers like him, motherfucker, <laughs> thinks he can come in and talk to Cabot like she doesn't line up her fucking ducks in her sleep. Right. You know what I mean? This guy yeah. has such a fucking attitude with her. And yeah. she's just like... Um, actually, I've got every answer to every bullshit thing that comes out of your mouth. Not today. Not today, right. Pickle King. Yeah. Malcolm and his lawyer look at each other and he's like, what do you want? She wants him to start reporting all communicable diseases to the health department. And then when Daniel's wife, Paula, sues and the victims of the other families do too, he'll settle. And this dude's lawyer is like, that's extortion. It'll cost the company millions. Law. And she's like, dude, it's less than if you went bankrupt. And in the court of public opinion, you're already guilty. Do you want to take your chances in real court? Oh, and I was just like, so fucking oh, hot right like, now. I know. It's like, oh, oh, my nips are so hard. Oh, my God. She's fucking amazing. Like, I was amazing. a little upset with her earlier, but I was just like fucking get him clear of it oh man. yeah mm-hmm. we're at the sentencing hearing cabot's completely satisfied with the doctor's report and won't contest to anything mm-hmm. the judge rules that daniel is not competent to stand trial he's remanded to the office of mental health to be placed in a secure psychiatric facility until he's fit to proceed but we know he won't ever be yeah and then daniel with vacant eyes kisses his wife and is led away Mm-hmm. So uh, Jeannie Watson, the wife of the slain son and dad, is there and she's crying. She looks at Stabler like she's mad or upset or I don't know. It was just like she just ugh. looks like hurt and pissed and stunned. I mean, she's still. Yeah, because yeah. it's like, what's the like, where's the justice for them? But also right. this guy who was by all accounts like a really great dude wouldn't have done this if the uh it always comes back to the fucking insurance companies right america sucks <laughs> all right this is a good fucking episode i was, was like super into this one end of the season i knew it was going to be good because it's the last episode of the season but yeah Okay, let's fucking do this because I. Cool. Here's the thing about the chaser it is, I can't condense this crazy shit. And when I tried, it felt rushed. So this episode is fashioned after one of the most notorious serial killers in the UK, the Yorkshire Ripper. Okay. Okay. On October 30th, 1975, Wilma McCann was brutally murdered in a playing field in the Chapeltown district of Leeds. Wilma had gone out for the night, leaving her four small children asleep at home. She was found 150 yards from home, having been beaten in the back of the head with a hammer and then stabbed Mm. repeatedly. It was almost immediately assumed that this attack was related to her being a sex worker. A few months later, in January of 1976, 43-year-old Emily Jackson was found stabbed 56 times with a sharpened screwdriver. Whoa. Yeah, I'll give you a minute with that. Jesus. Uh Mm-hmm. She was laid out behind a bakery in Chapeltown and was found like Wilma McCann near the red light district of Leeds. Mm-hmm. Police came to learn that she had been also involved in sex work as a way to contribute financially at home for her husband, herself, and their three kids. The Emmy found two circular depressions in her skull, which came from a hammer. And this mm. is when forensic pathologists connected the two women. Okay, so now, because both women were supposedly involved in sex work, they've decided that the killer was someone who hated sex workers, and they created a profile around that. Another piece of evidence they found with Emily Jackson was a size 7 boot print stamped onto her thigh. Like he had mm. like stomped on her. 
Jesus. So that was in January of 76. Then on a Sunday morning in April of 1977, a dog walker found the body of 28-year-old Irene Richardson in Round Hay Park. She was partially face down and her boots had been set neatly on the back of her legs. Her handbag had been emptied and everything inside was set next to it, but like laid out. Weird. Irene had also been involved in sex work. Another piece of evidence here that wasn't found before was a tire mark that had been left at the scene. So the pattern is fully set now. Blows to the head, death, mutilation, no evidence of penetrative sex or seminal fluid, and each victim was displayed for a shocking effect. Mm. This is when they knew they had a serial killer. The press called him the Yorkshire Ripper because of the similarities of the murders of Jack the Ripper in the 1880s. Also, it was a really eye-catching title. Yeah, definitely. The case was struggling to get attention because he was killing sex workers. Yeah, and like nobody gives a shit about sex workers. Right. The general public is reading it and they're like, this isn't a threat to me. So move on. Right. You know, next thing. On April 23rd of that same year, Patricia Tina Atkinson was found murdered in her flat in Bradford. She was in the same line of work as the previous victims and she was the fourth woman murdered in 18 months whoa and she was the first and only to be murdered in her home oh there were bloody boot prints found on the carpet leading to the door a disturbing thing to note in her murder was that when forensics came to look at the prints they saw that the killer had walked to the door to leave turned around and went back to tina's body to adjust her in some way before leaving again whoa and the boot prints matched the print found on emily jackson's thigh oh we're just like gathering evidence right Mm mm-hmm Side note, all the police were dudes. The journalists reporting on it were dudes. Mm -hmm. You know, the narrative is this guy kills sex workers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sure, guys. Cut to June 26, 1977. The Yorkshire Ripper murders 16-year-old Jane McDonald and had (gasps) placed her body in a park near her home. She was described in the press. Please don't throw anything. She was described in the press as the first innocent victim. Oh, my God. Because she had been walking home in Chapel Town, they thought the killer may have mistaken her for a sex worker. They're going to do anything to make it fit the narrative. And Jane's death really catapulted the story to a national level. So at the time of her death... Because she was important. She was important. And she was. And they all were. I know. But they were still like, oh, it's because she was outside at night. He mistook her for a sex worker because he hates sex workers and da, da, da. And, And there's this whole narrative created. And I know that's a part of like creating a profile for a killer, but... It was one of the biggest flaws in this entire investigation, Mm -hmm. which kind of dragged it on and allowed for a lot more people to get killed. When I get mad, when you say something, I grab things and then I just like, I'm then I like move them over. I just adjust where they are to focus the rage. (laughs) Gabe just held up a a Sharpie and a pair of scissors (laughs) in her little white knuckled fists. (laughs) Those are things you don't want to throw, Gabe. Yeah, I know. I'm like, you know what? These belong over here. There's an element of control to that that I really respect, though. So (laughs) thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So at the time of Jane's death, the police were no closer to catching the Ripper than they were when Wilma McCann was murdered. The investigators had been canvassing like crazy. They'd gone through three lead investigators, and now they've decided on a new tactic. They released a public letter in the paper. Some of the shit that they did, I'm like, you did that? But this is the public letter. Quote, you've killed five times now. In less than two years, you have butchered five women in Leeds and Bradford. Your motive, it is believed, is a dreadful hate for prostitutes. A hate that drives you to slash and bludgeon your victims. But inevitably, that twisted passion went terribly wrong on Sunday. An innocent 16-year-old lass 
a happy, respectable working class girl from a Ugh. decent Leeds family crossed your path. Ooh, How did you feel yesterday when your bloodstained crusade against streetwalkers had gone so horribly wrong that your vengeful knife had found so innocent a target? Sick in mind, though you undoubtedly are, there must have been some spark of remorse as you rid yourself of Jane's bloodstains. Wow. Fucking pieces of shit. I hear it and I go, from where I sit, I'm going, was that to my wanting to believe that everybody has the best intentions? I'm like, they were just trying to like speak in the way they thought he thought. But really so much of that was in actuality through proof of all other reporting and everything else, the way yeah. that it was yeah. truly looked at. Basically, the guy was like, I totally get why you want to kill prostitutes. Like, it's weird, but like, I get it because they're gross or whatever. But you fucked up and you killed somebody that was actually important. Like, that's fucked. Oh my God. I have like, okay, diamond nips. This is bullshit. Where's my sister? <laughs> There's a lot of like trash involved here. I mean, this guy. <laughs> How many times are you going to move those things? <laughs> a lot. Then in July of 1977, Marine Long was attacked in Bradford. She was like the others, bashed in the head, stabbed four or five times, but survived. Something had interrupted him and he took off. Marine was later found suffering with hypothermia and put in the hospital for nine weeks. The survival of Marine was felt to be a breakthrough in the case. Mm -hmm. That was short-lived, though, because Marine's memory of the situation was nearly non-existent because of brain damage that she sustained in the attack. Oh, man. A few months later, October 1977, Jean Jordan was found by a local dairy worker dude who ended up becoming a famous actor over there, Bruce Jones. It had nothing to do with it, but I saw his interview and everybody's like, hey, whatever. People care about famous people, but I don't know who he is and I didn't look him up. But it was very heartbreaking listening to him talk about finding her. Mm. He said, quote, her hair was burnt off. Her face was smashed in. Her breasts were cut off. She was disemboweled. She was cut in the most horrendous ways a person could cut someone. Oh my God. So when she was found, she was naked and her clothes were scattered around her and she fit the series of the other murders, including her occupation. But the difference was she was found in Manchester, which was considerably far away from the other attacks and other murders. Like everybody else was kind of in a 10 mile radius at this point and Manchester's way off the beaten path of that. Hmm. They were already struggling with trying to keep up with zeroing in on this guy and expanding the search, of course, added another wrench into it. Right. I can hear it. I'm sure the Mike is picking it up. That's fine. It's okay. We're getting the ducks cleaned out. Jacoby has like crazy allergies and we had some construction done. So there's just like a bunch of dust and allergens and whatever. So we're doing it so he can breathe. Sorry if there's noise. <laughs> I, th I feel like you just like you were this close to gaslighting the listeners. <laughs> That's what I did. That is what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm like, oh, is that irritating you? Do you care about my child? <laughs> <laughs> sorry you guys i am sorry i am so like uh uh like dedicated to wanting to make this sound good that this is happening and i'm like fuck you guys if you have anything to say about it <laughs> i hope you leave all of that in <laughs> so Jean had been put under a hedge, but after a few days when she wasn't found, he had come back and drug her body out into the open. She also had large post-mortem cuts on her like torso and stuff, which was mm -hmm. done when he came back. Oh. 
Oh, he's coming back. Her purse was found a ways away from her body and everything inside had been scattered, but it wasn't the way Irene's was where it was laid out neatly. It was everywhere. Like somebody was frustrated and had tossed everything. Turns out he had come back because he was looking for something. Oh. And he didn't find it because the police found inside like a small secret pocket in her purse, a brand new five pound note. Okay, this is where non-English people or UK people are going to get a little lost, or at least I did as I was putting it together. I'm like, oh, okay. I have no idea if we do the same here with our American dollars. I don't know anything about fucking, I don't know about currency, but they went down this path. At the time, service from sex workers in that area usually went for like a solid five pounds. Okay. So they immediately assumed the killer had paid her with this. And the reason he came back to get it was because notes in England were distributed with unique serial numbers and sent to banks in each district. This was a brand new note. It had been in circulation mm. for four days. So it oh. hadn't circulated at all, they could assume. Mm. They could trace it back to where it came from, like down to the bank. So okay. because of that, it was factored that it was one of three banks that it could be from, which then I don't know how they know this, but they know that it went to an employer of a factory, which then they know it was given to an employee in their wage packet. They were going to take that information and interview all of the male employees at these possible places. This was unfortunately one of the nine times during this investigation that the Yorkshire Ripper was interviewed by police and passed over. Oh, God. On December 14th of 1977, Marilyn Moore was attacked and she survived. She was able to supply the description of her attacker, which finally gave the police a sketch. They call it a photo fit, but it's a it's what we call a sketch. Right. They also had tire imprints from that attack that matched the tire marks at the murder site of Irene Richardson. Ten days later, he killed 18-year-old Helen Ritka. She had come to the area with her twin sister, Rita. And like many of the other victims, they were both in sex work. Her sister worked with the police after her death in painstaking efforts to help find her sister's killer. Nothing came of it. Can you imagine? I mean, these no. sisters came from a bleak background and the press was like, okay, we're going to take the case of this girl and her sister. They were able to contact their foster parents and get a full, they were like, we need to paint a picture of a real person who matters basically. <sighs> so they took to the family and tried to put that out there. At this point, 48,000 people had been interviewed. 48,000 people Holy had shit. been interviewed. 136,000 vehicles had been checked. Nobody really cared because the narrative was that this killer hated sex workers and was targeting them. In an interview, Detective George Oldfield said, and this, this was the one thing where I was like, oh, I like this guy, at least to a degree. Quote, what we do find, if there's something involving an animal, if an animal's killed in the course of the commission of a criminal offense, then, you know, the public are revolted by this, and then they'll come forward and give information. Yet when human beings are involved, Involved, particularly the type we're investigating, the murders of which we're concerned with, there's this laissez-faire attitude. They just couldn't care less. Oh, I hate everything, dude. I know. At this point, they offered a motivator to kind of push the public in wanting to help. A reward of 30,000 pounds, which today would be over 151,000 pounds, 
which would today be 215,000 US dollars mm-hmm. was offered. So obviously because of this calls poured in and the police were struggling to keep up. Again, they were no closer to catching him than they were at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. The eighth body found was that of Yvonne Pearson. She was found in a waste dump under an old sofa. Like this guy disposed of these women's bodies like he made it clear what he felt they were worth. Mm -hmm. They found that she had been dead for two months, but in her case as well, the killer had returned one month to the day after her disappearance and placed a copy of that day's Daily Mirror under her arm so that they knew he had been back. He's mocking the police at this point. Yeah. What a garbage fuck. At this point now, five million vehicles have been checked. Five million. Checking these vehicles, that part of the case had been abandoned. The five pound note inquiry that turned up nothing was also abandoned at this point. Mm-hmm. Now they're publicly like, hey, my dude, turn yourself in. Give yourself up. This is where they're at. Right. Something that, oh, there was Stephen Shaw. Well, his name was probably Stefan because he was English. But Stephen Shaw, a forensic psychiatrist, was making a televised. He was doing some sort of forum with an audience in speaking to the Yorkshire Ripper directly he said i do want to ask you to give yourself up you see you've made your point eight times and if you continue making your point you're just going to produce public sympathy for these prostitutes and i'm sure that is not what you want oh my god i mean this guy is murdering and mutilating women do you think like the fact that these guys can't expand their thought of maybe he doesn't give a shit about anyone's life anyone's life yeah now we're in may of 1970 41-year-old Vera Millward was found on the grounds of the Manchester Royal Infirmary by two gardeners. She, again, was a sex worker. She had originally been placed under a hedge, but later dragged out to a place where she would be found. This was the most open and most populated place he had left a body. He's looking for attention. Yeah. Then letters started coming. Along with these letters came a tape. The man's voice on the tape said this. Quote, I'm Jack. He signed off his letters as Jack the Ripper as well. Mm -hmm. He says, I'm Jack. I see you're having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. He's talking to the detective, George Oldfield. Mm -hmm. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord, you're no nearer catching me now than four years ago when I started. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. They can't be much good, can they? I'm not quite sure when I'll strike again, but it will definitely be sometime this year. I'm not sure where. Maybe Manchester. I like it there. There's plenty of them knocking about. They never learn, Mm. do they, George? At the rate I'm going, I should be in the book of records. I think it's 11 now, isn't it? Well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. Yours, Jack the Ripper. They spent all their time on these. They honed in on the dude's accent, okay? English accents are, there's like so many of them in such a small space. I've always found it really interesting, but they honed in on it and narrowed it down to one square mile. Can you believe that? Mm. They narrowed it down to one square mile in the Sunderland area. So they called this a Geordie accent. And so now they're like, we're looking for somebody with a Geordie accent. If they don't have a Geordie accent, don't bring him to us. They played this tape everywhere in public places, on TV. People would be out in the street and they would play it over a speaker system. You know, ask me if it was really the dude. Of course it wasn't. This guy was a troll. This derailed the case almost entirely to the point that one officer was certain the killer was who he ended up being. He's like, Mm -hmm. went in and he's like, I know it's this dude. I talked to this dude and I've got the sketch and whatever. His superiors were like, you're wasting our time and basically spanked him. And he's like, I'm certain it's this guy. And they're like, no, 
where's he from? And he's like, he's from Bradford. And they're like, no. Does he have a Geordie accent? No, this guy's from Sunderland. He's not from the area that we're looking at. Eventually, an officer realized the letters seemed to be written in a Victorian way of speaking as opposed to the way they spoke in the 70s mm-hmm. and put together that the letter writer was using the Jack the Ripper letters from the 1880s as a template. Fast forward them to reopening the hoax case in 2005 because they had DNA that they had found on the envelope from where he licked it and they matched it to John Samuel Humble. His DNA was on file from a drunken disorderly charge in 2001. He was arrested for trying to pervert the course of justice and got eight years in prison for it. I thought we could just wrap that up because that was a huge deviant from the investigation and the case and I feel like Dick Wolf would have wrapped it up so I was gonna wrap it up too. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, back to the 70s. They're still thinking these letters and tapes are valid at this point. In April of 1979, the body of 19-year-old Josephine Whitaker was found in Halifax. It was like an upper-middle-class area. She was found in the early morning in a playing field in Savile Park. This area was very different from the other areas he killed in. He almost always hung by red light district type areas. Also, Josephine was a building society clerk and not a sex worker. Well, now everybody's freaking out because Josephine was a, quote, respectable woman. Right. Then, on September 1st, the body of 20-year-old Barbara Leach was found under a pile of bricks. She was a Bradford University student. So the investigators were so hung up on the fact that this guy was killing sex workers that they decided he was only killing outside of those areas now because the red light districts were being so heavily policed looking for him. Right. Quote, hates prostitutes. So that's what we're focused on. Yeah. It it would change his profile. It would change his profile if they were willing to change how they viewed him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And like they can't. It's like I feel like that's like a common whatever. I know what you're saying and it is. It's like anything is possible, you know. <laughs> I thought you were going to start singing Everything is Awesome from the Lego movie. <laughs> Everything is awesome. Oh, I never saw those. Oh, well, you missed out. So Were they good? I mean, were they for adults too? They're funny. They're funny as shit. Huh. Also, I have a low bar for like my entertainment, so. Yeah, I suppose you do the Housewives of I meant whatever. the stuff I watch with my kids. The Housewives oh. is iconic. So the police unveiled a huge campaign called Project R. They spent a million pounds on this campaign, which again, I did the conversion. So now today that would be over $5 million US dollars. This proved the case to be the most expensive manhunt in the country. In 1980, 47 year old Marguerite Walls was killed. And three months later, 20 year old Leeds University student Jacqueline Hill was found at a garbage dump near the Arendale Center. The police were accused of negligence in the case of Jacqueline because they were called by Jacqueline's friends that night. Her friends were like, hey, Will you come down here? We can't find her. She was walking home alone and we found her purse with blood on it in the street. So the police came and basically filed a report and then they got another call and they were like, we got to go. The next day, her body was found nearby, like early in the morning. Shit fucking exploded. Everybody's like, fuck these cops. They're not doing shit. I understand that they felt a lot of pressure on their end and they had files upon files upon files and, and trying to run down all these leads and whatever else. But- People were scared, and so people were mad. Mm -hmm. No woman was safe after dark, so all of these campaigns started to police women, implement escort services. And when I say escort services, I mean, like, they were running buses and shit for women to be safely taken from wherever they were to home. Mm -hmm. They tried to implement curfews for women. Not in the 70s, Henny. Right. Women fucking revolted. 
Right. There were marches. Women were screaming in the streets that this was all based on violence against women and the culture of misogyny that created this type of situation. Mm-hmm. Why do we have to hide in our houses? I mean, this is going on for five years and they're like, just stay home until we get this straightened out, girls. You know? Right. Yeah. At this time, if you were a female journalist, you weren't doing this type of reporting. You were getting like the fluff pieces and shit. Yeah. But there were there were a small amount of women who were like, we need to look into this further. Like, we want to know more of these details. So this group of women were like, they need to let us get involved here. It's all men reporting on this. It's all men investigating this. There has to be an element of perspective that we can give that, of course, men aren't going to they're not going to hear them say that. Right. The whole world knew about the Yorkshire Ripper happening. Right. So Mm -hmm. there was a special report that went out all around the world, including to the FBI in the United States. The women requested copy from the FBI specifically because they were able to get access through FOIA, you know, the American Freedom of Information Act. Mm -hmm. So these women, these journalists got a hold of these reports. The misogyny and the way women were referred to in these official reports was fucking insane. The details of Wilma McCann, the first murder victim, included disparaging details of the condition of her home, her parenting choices, and the social choices that she made. And there was actually no confirmation that she was a sex worker. It was assumed. Same went for Irene Richardson. So it also turns out that there were attacks prior to Wilma McCann, including Olive Smell, who had actually spoken to her attacker. She knew he was a Yorkshire man because of his accent, but she wasn't connected to sex work, so police decided not to include her. Oh, my God. This was before Wilma McCann was murdered. This was before the first person was found murdered. Oh, my fucking God. What I'm getting at with that is that these men created the narrative of him hating sex workers and reports of attacks had been left out because they didn't fit that narrative, right? Right. On January 2nd, 1981, 35-year-old Peter William Sutcliffe was stopped by police because the plates on his car didn't match his vehicle. It was just some random cops being like, that's weird. He had 24-year-old sex worker Olivia Reavers with him. He was arrested for the vehicle offense, so these police take him into the station. And this cop happens to look at his face and then look at the sketch of the Yorkshire Ripper, which was in every precinct. You couldn't spit without hitting a sketch of the Yorkshire Ripper at this time. Right. So he looks at that. He looks at the dude. I imagine it's very comical. And he goes, holy shit, I'm pretty sure this could be the dude. So this Mm -hmm. cop's like, maybe I'll go back to that place where I got him and search around the trees over there. Because at one point, this dude slipped off and he was like, I'm bursting for a pee or whatever his accent was. (laughs) He doesn't tell anybody else. He goes back there by himself and he found a knife, a hammer and a rope. Oh, my God. This guy had fucking chucked it into the woods. Mm -hmm. So then he gets back to the station and he's like, holy shit, you guys, look what I found. Sutcliffe had also hidden another knife in the bathroom at the police station that they then found. They had him by coincidence and completely by mistake. They had him. Oh, my God. And watching these like this old footage of these cops being like, it was just good coppering. Ooh, we're fucking delighted. (laughs) We are delighted that this all came to blah, blah, blah. I'm like. Fuck you. Like, none of them had any sense of, um, didn't display any sense of decorum at all. They were just like, we did it, you guys. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So after a couple of days, Sutcliffe confessed, giving full details of each attack, murder, every fucking detail. Of course, with zero emotion, five years of killing and mutilating people. Mm. In his actual life, in his real life, in his life where people knew him, he was described as a quiet and unremarkable man. Mm -hmm. 
People said you wouldn't have looked twice at the guy. Right. At birth, he was five pounds, so he grew up really small for his age. And his dad described him as a gentle and kind boy who was very attached to his mother. Mm -hmm. He was called a mama's boy and a sissy as a kid. Also, his father had a history of violence. He abused Sutcliffe's mother. Whatever, Whatever all of the cases, let's run it down. He grew into an angry fucking psychopath. Right. Right. Yeah. Also, this guy was fucking married, which always baffles me. But my first thought is to be like, this has to be a hiding in plain sight kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There weren't a whole lot of details that I found about his marriage, but his wife was Sonia Sutcliffe. So he was arrested in 81. She separated from him in 89 and got a divorce granted five years later. That doesn't necessarily mean that she like was a supporter of his. It just might mean that you know, getting divorces is like yeah. a lot of fucking red tape. So I don't yeah. want to like put her on trial for anything. Also, she was dealing with her own shit. Mm. So police had actually questioned him enough times that his nickname at work, this is disgusting, was the Ripper and everyone oh. laughed about it. My fucking God. Yeah. I think they had come into his work like three times and they all, they were all just like, what are you doing in your spare time? And he actually was. That's fucking insane. Yeah. He wasn't even in the top 40 suspects. On January 5th, 1981, he was charged and pled not guilty to 13 counts of murder, but pled guilty to 13 counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He did admit to the seven charges of attempted murder on the attacks of the women who survived. He attacked way fucking more people. There's a deeper history that you can go into uh, with this guy, um, and his history actually starts in 1969. Hmm. But the first murder that he's connected to is Wilma McCann in 75. So prosecution was going to accept his plea of diminished responsibility because he had been diagnosed after his arrest with paranoid schizophrenia, which, again, is no longer a diagnosis. Four separate psychiatrists had given him this diagnosis. The judge was like, no, and didn't allow for his plea of diminished responsibility. When Sutcliffe took the stand, he testified that when he was working as a grave digger, quote, I was standing in an open grave taking a rest from digging. I heard a voice similar to a human voice, but with the words mixed up. It seemed to be coming from a gravestone. I climbed out and walked up toward the grave. It was something I felt was wonderful. It was something that I believed then and now was the voice of God. He claimed he was supposed to kill sex workers because God told him to. Okay. The funny thing about his diagnosis, though, was his wife had been diagnosed with the same thing just a few years prior. Hmm, so interesting. The likelihood of that happening is very, very low since only 1% of the entire population have that right. diagnosis. The prosecution claimed that he was mirroring her condition to sell it to the psychiatrist because there were 20 pieces of criteria and a series of them equaled you have this diagnosis. And I think that's kind of like the way they do it with any kind of mental illness or whatever that they have to determine you have, like you can't test my blood and tell me that I have this, whatever. Right. Yeah. If he was able to act his way through this criteria, which wasn't new to him, he was trying to be able to go in and be like, Hey, I'm not sane and not be sent to straight up prison, but be, you know, sent to a more cushy, right. You know, lockup situation. Sutcliffe was found guilty of murder on all counts and sentenced to 20 concurrent sentences of life imprisonment. The judge recommended he not even be considered for release for 30 years, which would have put him up for parole 
in 2011. Mm -hmm. But on July 16th, 2010, the high court issued Sutcliffe a whole life tariff, meaning he would never be released. He spent his sentence in and out of the hospital for attempts on his life by other prisoners, as well as his mental state. He was really pushing the mental health thing for a lot of years. And he was attacked multiple times in prison with very serious injuries. And Sutcliffe died at University Hospital of North Durham on November 13th, 2020, after (gasps) refusing treatment for COVID-19. Oh, my God. I know. Whoa. I didn't think that he was like even a a lot. That's crazy. I know. When I read that, I gasped. How old was he when he died? 74. Shit. Yeah. So he had a lot of pre-existing conditions at this point, and he had just been in the hospital for what they thought was like a possible heart attack Mm. two weeks prior. He went back in and it was like complications of COVID-19. Damn. Fuck you, Pete. Bye, bitch. So that's the end of season two. We're going to be back next week with basically just like a season two wrap up episode like we did at the end of season one. We're going to do a TNG Q&A. I'm trying to make that happen the way I forced intermissions on you. Mm hmm. And I think it's cute, but <laughs> it's fine with me. It just reminds me of our jackets, the TNG workout train. So I'm cool. That's with why it. I did it. Yeah. <laughs> choo choo. So we have some some emails, some messages, some questions, some thoughts about the season. And we have some of our own. So follow us on what? all social media at SVU pod. Email us at SVU pod at gmail.com. Check out our website, SVU We got merch. Hashtag little bit loud. If you are a small podcast. Search a little bit loud, and I'm going to be posting that list at some point on our Instagram. Um, I just haven't yet because I'm irresponsible. No, I'm just, I'm very, I'm too responsible. That's why. Yeah. Check that out if you want to find like small homegrown baby pods that you wouldn't find otherwise. So that's it, right? Yeah. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. In June. I moved it to be a day earlier so we can go to the um, fucking dirt fair. <laughs> what is it called? <laughs> Flea market. Flea market? Alcorn flea market? (laughs) He's like, this is for you, Ketter. I miss you. (laughs) Anything could be inserted. That was my nickname in high school. I fucking am just like over today. (laughs) 